Hi, and welcome to Episode 6 of Divided by Design, a podcast series on systemic racism. My name is Mitch Landrew, and I'm the founder and president of E Pluribus Unum. Our mission is to build a more just, equitable, and inclusive South, uprooting the barriers that have long divided the region by race and class. Our nation will be stuck until we redesign the systems that have kept us divided for generations. So we're talking to advocates, activists, historians, and thinkers to help break down the issues of systemic racism that have crippled our country since its founding, and to help us envision a brighter future for us all. The promise of America to her people is that we all come to the table of democracy as equals. Now, while that sentiment is good, we have never fully lived up to its ideal. On this episode of Divided by Design, we'll discuss the idea of democracy in America and reflect on how the United States at pivotal points in its history, including during Reconstruction and the turn of the 20th century, created systems based on race designed to thwart the social and economic progress of women and people of color, mainly black Americans. And we will explore the history of how institutional racism in two major areas of American democracy, voting rights and the census, have forever changed the landscape of racial inequity in this country, and how for more than 200 years of these racist, sexist policies, the country is now facing a future of tremendous uncertainty following the economic, health, and political challenges of 2020. In this second decade of the 21st century, The issues of voting rights and the census have both been central in the daily media due to their significance in the American political and economic arenas and their impact on the idea of American democracy. We're talking to advocates, historians, and experts. We hope to walk you through how we got here and how we can move forward towards healing and reconciliation. The Honorable Mark Morial, a former mayor of New Orleans and Louisiana State Senator and the current president of the National Urban League, reflects on the founding of this country and how the forefathers created a voting process designed primarily to benefit white, wealthy men. 1776, 1787, 1789, uh, the founding years of the Republic, uh, the Declaration of Independence, of course, leading first from the Articles of of Confederation to the Constitutional Convention. The important thing for Americans of this generation to believe is that there was never any intention for voting and the franchise to be universal and available to all. The mindset at that time was that it belonged to the favored few, white men of privilege and white men of property. Now, one thing we don't often talk about is that in those days, In those days, only 10% of the people were literate. Most people could not read. They could not write. They made their living using their hands and their bodies. But those that read and those that wrote and those that were educated were truly in great power. And so the Jeffersons and the Washingtons and the Madisons and the Monroes and and, and the Adamses and, and all of the great Uh, The founding fathers of this country were very learned uh, men, but also much, much, much more learned than the average person at that time. That the 
founding fathers made all sorts of political trade-offs which marginalized the value of black people but also created political advantages to slaveholding states slaveholding states got an opportunity to uh include in their population base for the purposes of the number of seats in congress all black people but count each black person as three-fifths of a person which meant for every basically 15 white people you got what almost uh, uh 10 black people added but those black people were not able to vote or participate in the franchise they were fearful of the abolition of slavery in the new republic because they were founding fathers in Philadelphia in 1787, Ben Franklin for one, who were abolitionists and who were opposed to slavery, but they were not willing to throw down a gauntlet to, if you will, say, if slavery is part of the new land, I won't be part of the new land. So from that period of time, uh, voting was uh, for white men of privilege and power. The Reconstruction era, following the Civil War, when former slaves had become American citizens with the signing of Abraham Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation, began as a period of great hope for black Americans. Mark Morial explains how the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments further progressed Lincoln's vision for a free and equal America. To Lincoln's vision, post the war, when necessary changes in the framing document or the founding document, meaning the Constitution. So three amendments were added. The 13th Amendment, which banned slavery. The 14th Amendment, which guaranteed citizenship to black people and guaranteed citizenship to those born on American soil and a provision that guaranteed all citizens the equal protection of the laws. And then finally, the 15th Amendment, which simply said that no state on the account of race could deny because voting was considered to be regulated by the states, the right to vote. A giant leap forward from slavery and servitude to full citizenship with the right to vote. And blacks began to vote and participate in politics. Indeed, our home state, Louisiana, had two black lieutenant governors in the 1870s, a black governor, PBS Pinchback, Uh, in the 1880s. There were 22 African-American members of Congress in the 1880s. Prominent voting rights attorney Mark Elias, who is also the publisher of Democracy Docket, explains how white Southern politicians during Reconstruction conspired to diminish black voting rights. In 2019, we challenged a provision to the Mississippi State Constitution that was put in place in 1890. Whites in Mississippi faced a, what they viewed as an existential crisis uh, uh, following the 15th Amendment, which was more than 100 uh, African-Americans, recently freed slaves, had been elected to the state legislature, uh, including, by the way, 15 to the state Senate. Um, and they had, in fact, elected a state lieutenant governor. Um, uh, uh, black men at that point arguably constituted a majority of the population. So what did they do? In 1890, Judge Calhoun um, 
uh, organized a hasty constitutional convention in Mississippi and changed the way in which they choose statewide elected officials because they were concerned that a governor, having experienced a lieutenant governor, uh, be elected. They were concerned that uh, that they could eventually be governed by uh, someone who was black. So they instituted a rule that um, said that in order to win statewide office in Mississippi, you didn't. it wasn't good enough that you won the popular vote. You also needed to win a majority of the state house. Well, of course, they gerrymandered the state house districts to be majority yeah. white. They have been majority white ever since. And it was put in place explicitly, not implicitly, not with any cleaned up 2020 language, but explicitly it was put in the state constitution explicitly as a check to prevent a black person from being elected governor by getting a majority of the vote. It was a way that they would they would prevent that from happening because they would control the state house. Mm-hmm. How many generations of black men and women didn't achieve political power because this constitutional provision was there? And we can't just turn our eyes and say that was then because this was the last go- this this was in place for the last governor's race. The hallmark of the late 1800s was effort to smash, crush, deny, thwart the right to vote that had been won by uh, uh, by by African Americans, by Black people, as a result of the Civil War. Mark Elias believes that the leadership of the institutions behind these racist systems are well aware that they are designed to disenfranchise women, people of color, and young voters likely to vote against repressive policies. We have drawn laws that have existed for time and time again that systematically, to use the mayor's word, systematically disenfranchise African-Americans, Latinx, There's similar data for Latinx in parts of the Southwest, uh, young voters, and at least in one place, women. So it's one thing for people to say these are neutral rules, but the neutral rules weren't drawn to inconvenience everyone the same. They were drawn to inconvenience some voters more than other voters. And until we get, until we accept that, that there are no, there is no neutrality in that system, but these are a series of policy choices. That's where that's that's where we are. Mark Morial maintains that the modern movement for voting rights, which began with the fight for women's voting rights in the 1920s, was born out of years of struggle and protest that started immediately following the Civil War and continued through the 20th century. When the Social Security Act was passed, two, uh, if you will job categories were excluded from Social Security. Domestic workers and farmhands, people that worked in agriculture. Well, where did most African Americans work? Women worked as domestic workers. Black men were working in rural jobs. That's an example of institutional racism. Another example is when the FHA was founded and the the government started guaranteeing home loans And they drew lines around neighborhoods and said, we can't insure any loans here, here, and here. It just so happened to be the African-American neighborhoods, right? And and that's another example of how then the mortgage market 
that's created and the home ownership opportunities that are created uh, exclude African-Americans because of decisions that are being made in an institutional sense. A person could be a fair-minded person, exist in and benefit from an institutionally racist environment and say, I don't have a bigoted bone in my body. And maybe they don't, right? And we have to understand individual bigotry is not the sum total of racism. You know, the racism is systemic, right? Morial believes that while the 20th century offered some hope for fair voting rights legislation, the 21st century was greatly impacted by numerous acts of voter suppression. The 2013 Supreme Court decision made Section 4B of the Voting Rights Act of 1965, ensuring fair voting opportunities for racial minorities, unconstitutional. The 20th century was marked by repeated efforts to expand the right to vote. Unfortunately, the 21st century, in its first 20 years, (laughs) is marked by an effort to make it more difficult for people to vote. And it's a sad and sorry legacy that we're all fighting against. I believe we're where we are today because in 2013, uh, the Supreme Court, in a decision that I think will rank with Dred Scott and Plessy as a low moment in the history of the Supreme Court, blew a hole in the side of the Voting Rights Act. And as a result of that hole, as a result of that hole, voter suppression just sprinkled and was injected like poison throughout the American landscape. Voter ID, ending early voting, uh, you name it. And there are so many pernicious ways in which uh, the right to vote is being thwarted. Mark Elias, who has worked diligently over the years pursuing litigation against states who have fought to create unfair voting districts that are favorable to their white constituents, notes that the rejection rate of legal absentee voting ballots placed by African Americans has become more prevalent in recent years, especially in former Confederate states. Vote by mail or absentee voting, you know, that's neutral. Those re- these anti-fraud rules we want, they're neutral for everybody. You know, why can't we have these rules that, that apply to everybody? So I've said this uh, to folks, that if you were to draw up a set of rules that you were trying to help old white people, it is what the absentee bo- uh, voting rules are in most states. Now, whether they were or not drafted for that purpose is a separate question. In many places they were, but it goes to the institutional effect of racism in this. So let's take uh, uh, some data to put some meat on the bones. In 2018, there was a close Senate race and close governor's race in Florida. Lou Nelson lost by one tenth of a percent, Andrew Gillum lost by four tenths of one percent. There was a study that looked at male voting rejections. These are ballots that were cast that were not counted. In a typical election, you have about 1% of vote-by-mail ballot don't count. So some social scientists said, let's look at the composition of that 1% in Florida. Here's what they found. African-Americans were disenfranchised at more than twice the rate of whites. So if you just look at the rejected absentee ballot pool 
um, it was it, 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 the rejection rates for blacks was twice that of whites. Morial adds that early voting, once used primarily by older white voters, has been the subject of numerous voter suppression cases nationwide since elderly black voters began dominating the early voting process in recent election years. Early voting was created to benefit older white voters. Older white voters so that they would not have to deal with lines on election day. When African Americans and others began to utilize early voting, particularly weekend early voting and Sunday early voting, that's when you saw the assault on early voting take place in many, many states across the nation. In spite of the prevalent cases of voter suppression across the United States, Stacey Abrams, a national voice on voter rights, best-selling author and former member of the state of Georgia House of Representatives, reflects on the positive changes that have evolved in voting rights over the last century. Fairness doesn't mean guarantee, but we know that over time we have made progress. We are no longer arguing about whether a person of color has the right to vote as an absolute, as a constitutional right. We've gotten that one taken care of. We no longer argue over whether women should be able to vote or over whether young people who are old enough to die for our country are old enough to vote. But we still have to battle states that want to limit the electorate because they don't want to have to convince the electorate to agree with them. And that's really the challenge of our age, not fighting for the baseline question of the right to vote, but fighting for the execution of that right through complete fairness in access to our electorate. We have made strides in ensuring voting rights for all Americans. Look no further than the 2020 presidential election, but it shouldn't be so hard. Representation starts, in a way, with the census. It is the basis of how maps get drawn and how political power is apportioned. Take a listen to Stacey Abrams on the importance of the United States census and being counted. We've had a census since 1790, but because the census is going to tell a story of a deeply diverse nation that is so different and so vibrant than it was 30 years ago. Those who do not want to see that change have decided that they're going to change the rules of the collection of data. And because the 2010 census told them what was coming, they've decided to artificially end the census, artificially deliver the data, and unfortunately, there's going to be an attempt to skew the data so it doesn't tell the truth. My push, and, and I was so proud to work with you on this, the push for fairness in the census is fundamental to who we are as a democracy because if we cannot tell ourselves the truth about who we are, we cannot plan for what we will become. And so we've been working through Fair Count for the last year and a half to accurately count people, particularly across the South and now into the Sun Belt, to make certain that there is an accurate story of America because it will determine the allocation of $1.5 trillion as a baseline. But you and I both know that the hurricanes that keep hitting, the natural disasters that are still to come, COVID recovery, those will add trillions more dollars to our budget in the coming years. And if we are not counted in the census, we will not be included in recovery. Mark Elias, who has appeared before the Supreme Court regarding census gerrymandering cases, 
has seen how states have attempted to redraw census maps targeting black citizens. I argued four cases in the U.S. Supreme Court um, in uh, between 2018 and 2019. Um, all four were racial gerrymandering cases. Um, uh, in two were out of Virginia, where the uh, legislature had put a literally a quota of 55 percent. Uh, that's how many African Americans they wanted in each district. Uh, in fact, there was an instance where the district state legislative district was 54.9 percent, and they said no, not good enough. It needs to be 55 percent. Um, uh, we sued over the congressional map, which had a similar 55% rule, and uh, as a result, uh, we won both of those cases. I think we have to recognize that with voting, the rules matter, and that there aren't neutral, that these are not neutral principles, and that the, you know, just as the deck was stacked against African Americans in the labor force, I, I, the Social Security example is like phenomenal. Uh, I mean, that's like a great way to, to think about it. But that in the voting process and in democracy, whether it's gerrymandering or what the state of Mississippi was doing, these rules have been in place and they have had long-term consequences that have affected who runs for office, who gets elected, how decisions are made, and how future decisions around elections are made. And we need to, we need to be honest about that. Mark Morial believes that in spite of the history of institutional racism in America and the challenges ahead for people of color, the United States has the great potential to achieve new heights if it chooses to embrace the diversity that this country offers and the power and unity for all. The country is becoming multicultural, multi-religious, multi-ethnic, multi-orientation. And if we uh, are not successful in leveling off the economic playing field, uh, if we are not successful in creating both political and economic systems that people have confidence in because they feel like they have a seat at the table, this country is going to pay a very, very steep price. Uh, people have to grapple with, understand, and embrace that the 21st century is not the 20th century. Just as people recognize that the 20th century was not the 19th century. And the norms, the attitudes that may have propelled the 20th century are not going to necessarily work in the 21st century. As a multicultural democracy, we have to be united by, Mark called it norms, I called it values, principles, aspirations, and aims. We're not going to be united by religion. We're not going to be united by ethnicity. We're not going to be united by a single set of maybe cultural values. That's the uniqueness of the United States. In that uniqueness is its beauty. And in that uniqueness is its risk. Its risk as to whether it can truly become this multi-ethnic, multi-racial, multi-religious democracy. But we've got work to do. Thank you for listening to this episode on systemic racism in our democracy. I hope you have a better understanding of how the unequal access to democracy impacts nearly every facet of our lives. Our hope for America is that by acknowledging the richness of our diversity, we can indeed fulfill America's promise 
of having all her people seated at the table of democracy as equals. Throughout American history, the entrenched leadership of our nation has sought to limit the opportunities available to people of color and women at the polls. Through evolutionary tactics like gerrymandering and limiting access to voting locations, those long lines we saw on the news in Georgia and Texas, for example, the message has been clear. Power will not freely be given. The institutional racism plays out in our daily lives, under our noses, and the best thing we can do is put the spotlight on these nefarious forces seeking to keep people of color down. With transparency and greater understanding comes change. Our intention is to educate and inform through this podcast series so that we may inch closer to a better nation, more accepting of those who look or pray or love a little differently than we do, so that we may all come together to fulfill the promise of the American dream. In our next episode, we'll look at the topic of reconciliation, what is possible, and how do we get there, on the Divided by Design podcast series presented by E. Pluribus Unum. I'm Mitch Landrew. Thanks so much for listening. For more information on this podcast series or how to get involved in our efforts to advance equity in the South, go to www.unumfund.org. Follow us at Unum Fund on social media and email us at podcast at unumfund.org.